Z-Man, it's a long way to the top, but he's made it. Anyway, good wel- welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. Today is, what is it, September 12th. Wow, good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to IAQ Radio. It's Friday, September 12th, and this week we are episode 339, I believe it is. Just, yeah. wow. We're in Studio D at the IAQ Radio, IAQ Training Institute, World Headquarters in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and here with me in the studio is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon. Good day, Jess. Back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is today's guest and my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Glad to be here, Joe. Good day, Cliff. Well, so joining us for the second half will be the global disaster restoration industry watchdog, Pete Consigli. We may have another special guest or two pop in here. You never know. Before we get started, uh, and of course, today we're going to interview the Z-Man. We're going for part two of the fire restoration session that we started last week. Started out real well, but we couldn't get through it all. We're going to finish it up today. And then for the second half, I think we'll just talk some industry issues and a little more on fire, etc. Let's start by thanking our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at Don J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean c-l-e-a-n-f-a-x.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of ieq radio when you inquire about their services and products all right you can listen to last week's show or any show streaming at our website iaqradio.com to download shows follow the link that says go to show and you can download shows from the Talk Shoe website. You can also, of course, get our shows from iTunes. Go to the podcast section. We also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products, for quantifying 
5,690 as the average number of structural fires that occurred in educational facilities per annum between 2007 and 2011. The IEQ radio trivia question for Friday, September 12, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for well over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Yesterday was the anniversary of 9-11, and our trivia question is related to that. Which of the World Trade Center buildings was the last to collapse on 9-11? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Hey, I've got a special guest to do your bio today. Let's see if we've got him on the line. Will we unmute? There we go. Special guest, do we have you? Yes, yes, Joe. I'm here. How are you doing, man? Very good, thanks. How are you? For those of you that don't recognize the voice, this is Cliff's son, Zach Zlotnick. Hi, Zach. Hey, Dad. How are you? Good. Good. Go ahead and give us the bio of the Z-Man. Will do, Joe. It's it's great to be back, and without further ado, the Z-Man worked in the family-owned pest control business while attending high school college, and after discharge from the military. In 1974, he founded Unsmoked Services, an odor removal and specialty cleaning firm. In 1977, he founded Unsmoked Systems, a manufacturer and vendor of odor control and specialty cleaning products. Then in 1980, along with other family members, they purchased Circo Products, a manufacturer of odor control products and systems, and the Microband Germicide Company, a manufacturer of disinfectants and insecticides. In 1981, he also founded Restorex, an international franchisor of fire and water restoration services. His over 40 years of business experience includes manufacturing odor control products and equipment, manufacturing disinfectants and insecticides, the, the sale of odor removal and disaster restoration equipment internationally, conducting restoration training programs, and providing disaster restoration consulting services. He is also widely recognized as a speaker at conferences and volunteer to the leading disaster restoration associations in the world. In 2007, he merged the business into Legend Brands, and in 2009, he, he founded Ideas LLC, a manufacturer of specialty chemical products. And without further ado, the Z-Man. All right, let's get some music for the Z-Man. Fire, fire, fire in the house, there's fire, fire, fire in the house where there's strength and healing power, there's fire, fire, fire. All right, Cliff, before Zach goes, I want to ask a quick question. Cliff, what was it like coming up in this family with the, you know, starting in the pesticide area and then moving over into the unsmoke and odor control products and then, you know, disaster restoration companies and all that. Uh, what do you remember the most? Well, I was always the oldest, so I was the first one in my, you know, family that did it. So, you know, I got drafted to kind of help my father, you know, in the pest control business and had the opportunity to, uh, they always paid me for what I did. You know, they just, you know, I wasn't really slave labor and, you know, I always received 
uh, fair compensation for what I did, and I kind of liked it. You know, I, I kind of liked, you know, doing learning what my dad did and, and kind of, uh, you know, getting the skills that, that kind of went along with it. Uh, before my father was in the pest control business, uh, my family was in the odor control business, and the company that we purchased, the Circo Products Company, was actually started by my uncle and my grandfather. So um, that's kind of how we got into it. I see. Zach, what do you remember most about all those times? You know, you were the, I don't know if you were the oldest or the youngest of the two boys. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the oldest out of the two. I, well, I remember when we, I, well, my, my, my biggest memory of it is when we set up manufacturing. And when we started making all of, and when we started making all of the products, and also going to a bunch of, uh, like my, both my mother and my father would 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 bring me to the office, and even on weekends, and see and seeing uh, the and seeing the unhouse that we had put together, where we purposely uh, uh, smoked damaged rooms and 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 flooded other rooms uh, for, uh, for the purposes of educating people. I also remember. Uh, compl- uh, completing some of that, uh, completing some of the training as well. And in fact, I recently found some of my uh, credentials, which have obvi- which have obviously long expired. But nevertheless, uh, the lessons learned have been very valuable. Excellent. Well, thank yeah, you. I'll never forget one time I promised them that I would take them to a uh, to a job. We were actually doing a fire restoration project at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And uh, we're doing work in a dormitory there, and I promised them that, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, allow them to go. I'd allow them to use the flogging equipment and so on and so forth. Zach, Zach was always into using the equipment. But I said, you know, the one thing is, you know, we're going to leave at like 4.30 in the morning, and I need you to be up. And, you know, if, if, if you're not up, then I'm leaving. And I remember going into his room at four o'clock, and man, he was sitting up in bed, and he was ready to go. So, uh. <laughs> great, that's great. And and I remember that as well. I remember, uh, well, I remember using the thermogen, yeah. which was, uh, which which I, I don't remember how old I was at the time, but I just remember, the, I just remember the feeling of awesome power for <laughs> you know for a kid my age. Uh, you know. Cliff, we talked a little about, about the thermogen last week, but I don't know that we got into much detail on it. Um, was that something you actually – did you invent that? Did you take that and, you know, mold it from something else? I don't know the whole story, I don't think. Okay, but it, it's a very interesting story, um, and, and I'll kind of tell it to you. But uh, what's interesting is thermal fogging is, is the concept that really goes back to World War II, it kind of came out of, uh, uh, you know, German uh, technology, rocket technology. Uh, that's where pulse jet engines were developed. And how we got really into thermal fogging is my father did a pest control project for my one of my high school chemistry teachers, Mrs. Littman. And what was very interesting is she and her husband were both into science, both into chemistry. And they lived in a very, very nice home in Squirrel Hill, and they kind of had some exotic pets like a six- or eight-foot alligator that was in a special tank uh, in, in their basement. And what was interesting about them is they actually developed the chemical maze, anti-personnel gas. 
they, they, they founded a company called General Ordnance, and they made the, uh, you know, this gas for anti-personnel use. And they also uh, made it for crowd control. And what they did is they had thermal foggers, and what they would do is they would, um, you know, put the, uh, the material in the thermal fogger, start the, you know, start the fogger, and then utilize it for crowd control. And I remember my father bought the first two thermal fogging devices uh, from them, and they actually said general ordinance, pepper fog on them, and so on and so forth. And they were made by a company called Curtis Steiner Products in, uh, in, the, in the Indianapolis area. So that's where we first got it. They were used for pest control, you know, primarily for killing uh, flying insects. And we kind of came up with the idea of using it for odor removal, hmm. you know, following fires. It, it just seemed to make sense. And it's still widely used today. Now, there's two two versions, or maybe I'm mistaken. Is there an electric version and a uh, gas-powered version? or is Well, that thermal fog, what thermal fogging means is you're going to heat the fog material, uh, and when that fog material is introduced into cooler atmospheric air, it condenses. So anyone that wears glasses or spectacles, sunglasses, etc., you know, it's common if you want to clean your glasses, you, you take the glasses off, you put them in front of your mouth, you exhale on them, uh, your breath condenses on, on that glass or plastic surface. That's what happens during thermal fogging. So what the process really means is you're going to heat the solution and, and allow it to condense into uh, atmospheric air. So you can power this equipment with jet engines. Uh, you can power it with electricity. Um, you know, it can be done with uh, some liquid uh, petroleum gases such as propane and butane as well. You know, I, I wanted to start out the, the first half today first by bringing in Zach, and it's, it's great to hear you, Zach, and, and I know you're at Google there, and I hope things are going well. Will you be able to stick around for the second half, too? Yes, I will. Awesome. Well, let us uh, let me go back to the last week for a minute, Cliff. After the show, you know, we talked a little bit, but I really didn't get a chance to ask you this question, and, and I'd like to start this way, and that is, after last week's show, what what did you kind of think about afterwards that you maybe had wished you had said or, or, or would have changed a little differently or something you wanted to add or, or you know, re, um, re, re, restate? No, I think I was, com- I think I was comfortable. I mean, there, there's just a lot of information, you know, to go over. And, and I think it, it's always good to uh, be sure that we honor the, uh, you know, the listeners and, and their particular questions. So I didn't have any, you know, any problem, you know, kind of facing in or, or kind of facing out answering those questions. All right. Well, let's go to a listener's question from last week. And and one of them was, um, it it had to do with what is your completion criteria after a a fire job? You know, what was your completion criteria? Well, I really think it's, it's pretty simple, Joe. It's customer satisfaction. You know, generally the customer controls the purse strings. And if they're not happy, we're not going to get paid. So that's really where it is. But what I can do is go a little bit deeper 
into it and talk a little bit about the approach. Um, you know, our approach in dealing with a client is to start out right. And, and what we mean by that is they're going to, in the end, they're going to look at everything and, and they're going to smell everything. Does everything look good? And does everything smell good? So essentially seeing and smelling is believing. So at the beginning of the project, I think what's real important is, you know, there's fear and there's doubt. Uh, you know, they're, they're concerned that things cannot be put back together the way that they were before. There's a sentimental attachment. There's an emotional attachment. And what we need to do at the beginning is show the customer the extent of the problem. Then we need to set the expectations. And I, what I would rather do is minimize the expectations and then overachieve rather than promising too much and not being able to, to deliver it. So it's real important that they know where the residue is, they know where the damage is, and once they know how bad it is, they also have the ability to visually monitor and I guess olfactorily monitor the corrective action. So they're going to see what we do. And I really would encourage them to be there on a daily basis, particularly at the end of the day, and what the project manager can do or a crew supervisor can do is take that homeowner through that day's work. This is what we did today. We did this and, and we did that, and I hope that you're okay with it. You know, if you have any questions or comments, let me know. And what I would like to do is we would actually have a work order where they would sign off uh, on a daily basis. They would just initial that this work has been uh, done to their satisfaction. And the reason I started doing that, Joe, is, is one of my early fire jobs, I ended up doing a great job for a client who was just a deadbeat, and they never paid us. So I ended up suing them. And when I went to small claims court, I lost. And the reason that I lost is it was really a, a he said, she said situation. Uh, I said I did the work properly. They said that I didn't do the work properly and that that's why they didn't pay me. And I really had no proof to prove that I did the work properly. It was an expensive lesson, but I learned it early and carried that through my career and also shared that suggestion you know, with everyone else where we would actually have a work order with what we were going to do, the order in which we were going to do it, and we would ask the customer to come and inspect the work at the end of every day. So next time I went to court, uh, I, I had the paperwork, and even if they asked us to leave the job or we walked off the job or whatever, we knew that we had satisfaction from the beginning of the work to that point that we had the last signature on those forms. That's a good good tip for people. Um, Cliff, the other thing – I'm not hearing myself. There we go. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you, it, after the show I started thinking about it, I, you know, I ask a lot of questions about – clearance and, and post-remediation and how that occurs and so on. And we've done shows with people that are, are working on ways of analyzing and evaluating fire-related cleanups. And I'm wondering if, you know, back in the earlier days and even up until like five or ten years ago, was there as much emphasis on, on sampling and, and, and uh, analysis and, and trying to make sure that things were cleaned properly through that? And if so, what, what were you doing then? 
I don't think there was a big emphasis on it, Joe, and I'm not sure that there's that big of an emphasis on it now. You know, I do know that RIA, uh, you know, worked in conjunction with IESO, and they came up with a standard of evaluating residues, you know, inside of ductwork to determine, you know, whether or not they were, whether or not they weren't fire-related. And I somehow think that, you know, the story that I have is that there's a large building uh, in New York City, you know, following 911, and if, if they had to clean the ventilation system, it was going to be very, very costly, and they just wondered whether or not the system was, in fact, contaminated or not, and that's kind of why they had that standard. But I think they used some microscopy, uh, but, you know, I, I would say in, in most fire restoration projects, they're not going to really get involved with sampling. The sampling that I would do as a um, as an estimator would be to go in, determine, uh, n- number one, go into the area in which the fire occurred. Typically, by doing that and using some sampling wiping-type material, you can either use a paper towel. Some people would use uh, a chem sponge. Uh, you can use a cosmetic sponge. And we want to determine what color is the residue. And then as I would go through the house, uh, you know, typically the further away you get from the the point of origin, the less residue you're going to find on walls and ceilings. And you're going to get to a point where the only place you have residue is pretty much on horizontal surfaces, with the exception of windows, outside walls, cold surfaces. And, you know, there's generally a pattern in which the uh, residue deposits, and we're going to remove all that residue. We want to find out where it is, We want to, and then we're going to remove it. Now, that kind of leads me to another listener question that was sent to me after the last show, and it's, it's about soot deposition, and, and he wanted you to tell him a little bit more about how metal affects soot deposition and and I think he was particularly interested in the, the magnetic effect that, that we talked a little bit about. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, smoke is attracted to cold surfaces, and generally metals will be at a lower temperature than the rest of the room. That Typically, they're going to be a little cooler. And so that's one reason why metal, why smoke will be attracted to metals. A good example is clothing that may be on metal hangers in closets. And and typically what we see in fire restoration is you can see that perfect outline of where the garment is in contact with that metal coat hanger. The rest of the garment looks clean and you'll actually see, you know, a line that follows along with the coat hanger. Not all metals are magnetic. In fact many are not. Aluminum is not magnetic. You know, brass is not magnetic. Gold is not magnetic. Silver is not magnetic. So typically, um, you can also have this vapor plating action that occurs. And when you have vapor plating, a lot of times it's going to occur in some sort of interstitial space, wall cavity, ceiling cavity, you know, where hot smoke and hot air is, is, is passing through, and there's a lot of contaminant. There's a lot of particulate, and it's going to uh, deposit itself on metals. It's very common in plumbing chases inside of wall and ceiling cavities. Okay. I, I've got another 
question from a listener that kind of fits into this category. I don't think it's really as fire-related, but they they were thinking about this. Um, I guess the show brought this question to their mind, and it's a current project they have. So essentially, they've got two different properties. We're going to talk about the first one uh, here first. They're curious if you or anyone you know has found a soot-like substance in a home, and this is occurring where all the edges of the carpet uh, meet the wall and at the bedroom doors where the air travels under the door. They, they appear to be soot-stained. Uh, the walls also have it in areas where they need repainting and carpet either cleaned or possibly replaced. Fairly new home, uh, no fire, no furnace to be operating improperly, etc. Joe, to me, it, it sounds like something that would be called filtration soil, and that's a term that's you know, generally acknowledged to describe a dark black or grayish residue, you know, that commonly uh, appears on carpet. Uh, what it's caused is there are air streams that are uh, greater in that area than in the surrounding area, and, you know, we know that there's always particulate in the air. You know, all of us have, have seen sunlight come through a window at that angle, and it's almost scary sometimes when you see all the dust and, you know, the particulate that, that's floating in the air. So this is caused by air streams, and what happens is it, it causes that particulate to impinge or deposit on just those areas where you have these, these strong air, air, or stronger than the ambient air streams passing through. And you get some turbulence in those areas, too, just like on a diffuser we talked about before the show, you know, where the air comes out of a, a ceiling diffuser for your mechanical system, and it causes this turbulence that kind of causes almost like a circular pattern, and then that, that particulate that's in the air deposits on there. And this can be amplified, in my experience, when people burn candles or, um, you know, use a lot of... Uh, incense and you know anything they burn within their home can can add to that as well and then i noticed too that he said something about um areas on the wall where they need repainting etc and maybe there's something to do there with um cold surfaces once again right cold surfaces it can be a difference in the insulation you know an inconsistent uh installation of insulation you know if you know, if, if they've got fiberglass bad insulation, or it could be settlement if it's blown insulation, or it could have been a work area. You know, at some point, you know, they needed to do some repair work and they didn't re-insulate or didn't re-insulate properly. So that's generally what's going to cause it. Uh, you know, typically, I think a little bit of research on the on the internet, they're going to be able to come up with all sorts of photographs and all sorts of information so they can go back to their client, you know, print it out, lay it out, this is what's happening, and, you know, we understand what, you know, you're concerned, but, uh, you know, other people have felt the same way, uh, and this is what they found out after doing the research. Right. Now, while we're talking about the particles in the air and the size of these particles, we, we brushed across it a little bit last week, but I see Doug, Doug's got a question online here. Um, what is the typical size range for soot uh, with respect, I guess, to micrometers? Well, I guess, um, you know, first of all, I think if you talk about smoke, typically you're gonna, we're going to be talking about PM, uh, particulate matter that's going to be under 10 microns. So 
and depending on exactly what's burning and you know, how it burns, uh, I would say that a lot of soot particles, they're pretty small. They're going to be uh, two and a half micrometers or smaller in diameter generally. Yeah, I think that's been my experience too, especially when particle counting and, and cigarette smoke, um, it just ponds the point threes even, even sub-micron particles um, so will really, really increase your point three micrometer particles. So, all right, let's go back, Cliff. There was one other question, and I can't remember why I came up with this. I think I looked at your presentation from the Healthy Buildings Professional Summit, and there was something in there about uh, – to film or not to film? What What exactly? I know we're not talking about videotaping here. There's something else. What is that? Okay. From an odor control standpoint, we talked last week about charred materials and the fact that charred materials dramatically increase in surface area and they become very, very porous. And one of the things we talked about was a technique that is called suppression spraying, which is to take a water-soluble smoke odor counteractant and spray it onto that charred material until that charred material doesn't smell anymore. Mm -hmm. So essentially we want to take something that smells negatively, we want to totally suppress the odor to where we don't smell it anymore. What happens is we came up with this idea of if you wanted to make the product, if you wanted to form a film over that surface, we developed a product which would, I guess the best way to describe it would be industrial strength hairspray. Water-soluble polymers and resins that would actually fill in the cracks, fill in the crevices, and form a film over top of that surface. And this was after the odor counteractant? It, it could be it could be applied with the odor counteractant. They could be applied either separately or they could be applied simultaneously. Oh, okay, okay. And and one of the reasons for that is in certain surfaces, you may want to use a film, uh, something like concrete block that's very very porous, or in certain situations, woods, you know, wood surfaces. And what we found is that by putting a film on these surfaces, which was very, very inexpensive, it would dramatically reduce the amount of paint that would be needed to cover it, or uh, in this case, sealer that would be needed to cover it. And I just happened to have been at Home Depot this week. I was doing a, uh, a project at my office. And I, I looked at the price of various different sealers. And, you know, when I was at Home Depot, they were selling pigmented shellac. It was about $42 a gallon. Wow. And if you could reduce the, 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 the demand for that product on the project by a third, it would be very significant cost savings. So that was one of the reasons we came up with the, this film-forming technology. All right. I just want to alert people. We, we may go over a couple of minutes um for, before we go to halftime, I want to get two more questions in, Cliff, before we go to halftime. That's fine. I'm not going anywhere. Okay. We didn't talk a lot about, you know, we talked a lot about odor and, and you know, soot and how it gets through buildings and evaluating the building and, and clearing the building. But we didn't get into a great deal of detail on the actual cleaning. I mean, we talked about 
chem sponges and we, we talked about using lamb's wool, etc. But one of the things that I recall that really um, kind of stuck in my mind was that, that when we were discussing cleaning fire, you said it was important to clean after a fire working from the bottom of the wall and moving up, whereas in you know, clearance projects for asbestos and lead and um, mold remediation, etc. we typically have people start from the top and work their way down. Why does it have to be done the opposite way for fire jobs? I think you may be confused, but let, let's, let, let's start with the terminology clean. Okay. I'm very uncomfortable, Joe, using the terminology clean on certain materials or certain surfaces in a home or in a building. And generally, the sur those surfaces are painted surfaces. And what happens is a restoration contractor can do his best to remove contamination from that surface. But in certain situations, that surface may be scorched, it may be burnt, uh, it may be uh, the residue may be deeply embedded into the pores, and we can't get it out. So we've processed it to the best of our ability, and that surface may be ready for additional treatment, you know, like a refinishing treatment or painting, uh, you know, uh, coating or whatever. But visually, it may not look clean. And clean is something that everyone has a different definition of and probably has a different expectation of. So I really don't like to use the word cleaning uh, when I'm dealing with walls and ceilings because oftentimes after we've processed them to the best of our ability, uh, they may not look perfect. And to a customer, that may not look clean. So we, we try to avoid clean. We'll say we're going to process it, we're going to wash it, um, we just want to kind of avoid the word clean around uh, walls and ceilings. Okay. I think that um, where the confusion comes in is when I would always want to process uh, beginning at the top of the room and, and working down. So we would always want to start at the top, particularly with what we're going to call dry soil removal, you know, lamps, dusting, vacuuming, so on and so forth. If we don't start at the top and work our way down, then we're going to, if we start at the bottom and, and, and started working up for dry soil removal, we're going to end up recontaminating and, and doing double work as okay. we work up. Okay. Where starting at the bottom can come into play is, some, is it's a, really a matter of personal preference. When we go to washing the walls or wet cleaning the walls, uh, some people like to start at the bottom and work their way up. Uh, other people like to start at the top and work their way down. The reason that people would start at the bottom and work their way up is it's less likely to streak the walls that way. I see. Okay. However, with most of the residue being at the, on the ceiling in the upper portions of the walls, um, I'm not so concerned about streaking if I can't clean the wall and make it perfect. You know, I really would want to test clean the wall, and I would test clean the worst area. Can I make it look perfect or not? If I can make it look perfect, then I'm probably going to start at the top and, and work my way down. And, and it's really about the techniques to control the water and the moisture and the cleaning solution so you don't drip. If you don't drip and you don't run, you're not going to, and you apply equal pressure, you're not going to streak. 
All right, let me get one more in real quick. I, I think it'll be fairly quick, but if it's not, you let me know. Um, what about the use of ozone on on uh, fire restoration projects, particularly for odors? Okay, I don't really have a problem with ozone in general, okay? W- what I found is that ozone works most effectively with natural smoke odors, where you've had wood, where you've burnt paper. That's generally where it works well. Uh, what I suggest is that ozone machines not be used on location. I, I would not want to put them into a home, put them into a building that was fire damaged. The reason for that is that ozone is often sold as a hunting dog. You know, you turn the machine on, the ozone comes out, it hunts down bad odors, it eliminates bad odors, and all we have left is carbon dioxide and water vapor, but it really doesn't work like that. But I do think that the the dog, um, the the dog analogy is, is good, because what happens is that ozone's like a male dog in heat. It's going to react with the first thing that it can react with, and that may be good or it may be bad. And, and what you can find is ozone can react with certain background chemicals from cleaning products uh, that, that may have been used in the home or chemical emissions from building materials, contents you know, that are in the home. So what most restoration contractors would do is they would have what they call an ozone chamber. It's an area in their facility where they'll take loose contents, put them in, you know, run the machine, and uh, determine whether or not it's effective uh, in deodorizing. It's one of those things that either works completely, uh, it doesn't work at all, or it works somewhere in between. All right. Well, let's let's stop for a minute here. I want to thank our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to have the second half of our interview with the Z-Man. We're on far, uh, part two of the fire restoration. But I've got... Uh, the Global Restoration Industry Watchdog coming on, and I've also got another special guest coming on. We're going to talk a little more about contents, I believe, when we get back. So uh, we'll be back in 90 seconds. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. 
your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and coming in to help me with the, uh, we're going to do like a little roundtable discussion thing. I've got the Restoration Industry Global Watchdog, (coughs) Pete Consigli. Pete, take him off that choker. Pete. (laughs) Hey, Joe, how you doing? Good, thanks. How are you, buddy? We we got you back, Cliff? I think so. Hi, Pete. All right, great. How you doing, Cliff? Yeah, you know that global, that global watchdog thing, Joe. I think you you kind of named me that. I'm not really sure how that came about, but it seems I'm kind of stuck with that moniker. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you, Pete. Hey, I just wondered, do you have any comments or any any questions from the first half? No, you know, I mean, I uh, I, I, I obviously I listened to the first half, and which was a continuation from last week. I didn't really get a chance last week. I was traveling, didn't get a chance to uh, to download the podcast, but I took a look at the, uh, you know, at the blog, and uh, yeah, it's pretty much the interview up to this point. It's had a little bit of history, but it's been more of a kind of a technical discussion and a follow up from the presentation that uh, that Cliff had given at Seven Springs, mostly kind of geared towards uh, the environmental consultant audience. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the stuff he's talking about are things that are probably. Um, you know, generally known by uh, the restoration listeners, I kind of would like to take a little bit of a different direction that you alluded to and talk a little bit, you know, based on, you know, close background and experiences really being a pioneer in the industry and then, in my mind, one of the industry's founding fathers in in the restoration area. Talk about, um, you know, where he sees things going in the future and where there may be some needs that... um, that the industry needs to address. And I think I'd like to kind of start in the training area. You know, one of the things that um, Cliff is probably most well-known for in the industry is being the pioneer in hands-on training that dates back to the mid-'80s when he was really the first person in Unsmoke with the first company to flood a building and also, you know, start a fire in a building and then give real life hands-on experiences of how to dry and clean and restore and deodorize these items. And I think uh, since, you know, we sold on smoke and the industry's, you know, now uh, gotten into hands-on training, mostly in the, I think, in the water and drying area and possibly in some of the cleaning areas. But to my knowledge, I don't really know of anyone who's aggressively doing what Unsmoke did in the early days, and I, I think that's a void. And I'd like Cliff's opinion on, uh, you know, where he thinks the industry stands. And as we move into the future, what kinds of hands-on level of training does he think the industry needs to have and that could be useful to help us mature and kind of grow to the next level? So kind of throw that out to Cliff to address that in any way he'd like to for the audience. Yeah, that's kind of a long question. And I guess there are a number of different ways to comment on it, Pete. I think one of the challenges is that I think in many situations, you know, within the industry, uh, you know, there was a, I think a book and then a movie called The Paper Chase, and it was about someone trying to get through college. And I think in many situations in our industry, you know, we have what's called the, the patches chase, 
or someone wants to take a training course and get a patch and, uh, you know, get some initials, uh, you know, whether it's water restoration technician or fire restoration technician and, and so on and so forth. You know, both you and I went through the Certified Restorer program, and we realized, you know, how difficult that program was. You know, it's five it, when we went through, it was five days of, uh, you know, tough restoration classroom, uh, almost trivia-type information, and then really a hellacious test, uh, you know, at the end. And then I think as the course went on, people needed to, uh, you know, write papers and capstone projects and, and so on and so forth. And we did that in order so that, you know, we could have this designation. And I think one of the most confusing things in the industry is you have people that have taken an IICRC class in whatever it is, and, you know, whether it's a one-day class in odor control or a two-day class in water restoration. And after their name, they put these initials, you know, say Joe Smith F FSRT, you know, fire restoration, smoke restoration technician. And I think the consumer has no idea you know, what that means. And I think sometimes the, the more initials they have, you know, sometimes maybe uh, the more impressed the customer is, uh, you know, by it. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that we like to do, uh, really from a training standpoint, is I, I always like the training that we did for RIA better than the training that I did for, R, for IICRC. And I think the reason was is that RIA's philosophy when we did the Certified Restoration Technician Program was to teach both fire and water together because oftentimes they're very, very integrated. You know, every water damage, or I'm sorry, every fire damage is in part a water damage. And I think today there's so much uh, specialization. Uh, you know, there, you know, I think most of the structural cleaning techniques and procedures are, are gone and lost. You know, today there are some courses you can go to, uh, you know, for contents cleaning and contents restoration. You know, they're outstanding courses, but they don't deal with structure at all. Hmm. And, you know, I think it's just been so segmented and so specialized. And I really think that you need to think about a fire restoration project uh, holistically rather than uh, specifically. I also have concern about uh, instructors. I, I think that in order to teach fire restoration that you do need field experience in doing it. You know, I'm not so concerned at how many estimates that you've written in the last five years. Well, my concern is that you've actually done it, learned to do it right, had good success in doing it. I think in many situations in the industry, we have techniques and procedures that are not fundamentally sound that end up finding their way uh, into course material, finding their way into examinations. And, you know, we're teaching people stuff that's incorrect, and it just gets perpetuated because it, it takes, uh, you know, years for the, the, these exams to you know, come back for review. But I think with adult learners, you know, most of us learn best by seeing and learn best by doing. And... Uh, you know, I, I think I developed the courses based on how I learned and what I wanted out of the course. You know, you, you, there's a couple things you guys mentioned that makes me 
want to bring on this next guest here. Um, first, Pete talked about legends. I think I've got a legend on the line here. And then Cliff has been talking about contents and contents training, and we've talked a lot about industry associations and certifications and programs. I want to see if I've got Lee Pemberton on the line here. Lee, are you with us? Hello, Lee. Yes, I'm here. Uh, welcome, Lee, and thanks for joining us. Um, I wanted to bring you in. I think most of our listeners know of you, and, and you've been on the show with us before, and I really appreciate it bringing you back. Um, you're a legend in the industry, a shareholder in the IICRC, so you, you go way back with Cliff and with Pete. I was wondering um, what you might want to add to this particular part of the conversation. Well, first of all, I'd like to say hi to both Cliff and Pete. Hey, hi, Lee. And, Lee, it's, uh, it's good to hear your voice. It's been a while. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well and uh, for a young man, and uh, I'm happy to, to join you. You know, Cliff, I'm really interested in uh, in your answers. Uh, it felt just like the old days when I used to sit in the back of the room while you were teaching. I don't know if you you probably recall from the very first years when you met me, probably the late 70s. Absolutely. You've always been one of those rare individuals that thinks outside the box. And uh, listening to you, I <laughs> I know why I always counted on you for that. And uh, that's always made you very controversial. I really loved that when we sat together on the board of the IICRC. And uh, I'm hoping that you're you're going to stay that way because that's the only way we get some good thinking, especially in our industry. You made a, a, a comment uh, about how how the some of the cleaning techniques have uh, have not changed or have kept up. And boy, that's for sure. I recall, I see there's still stuff being trained that uh, I was teaching back in the days I talked uh, with Ed York. And my goodness, those things have long gone by, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear you talking about that. But I have a question I want to ask you. Uh, and I'm doing this because of my deep interest in the IICRC and one of the couple of remaining uh, individual shareholders. I'm very interested in your thinking, and uh, that's led you to uh, take the uh, position on the executive committee and the board of directors of the new IICRCA. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what your goals or what what the, what what you you hope to accomplish with this? With what the IICRCA? Yes, I, I think that really the. The industry needs to come together um, and have some sort of unification. And I think that we're now in um, you, you know, Lee, you and I went through the, the years where uh, regional trade associations were were, were viable and, and were meaningful. And I think what happens today is a lot of the people that are coming into the businesses today are, uh, you know, they're from a different generation, and they don't want to necessarily learn the way that that we learned. And I just felt that by working together, instead of uh, you know trying to compete with one another, that we could get a whole lot more. Uh, accomplished. So it was really more, you know, trying to bring associations together 
and leveraging those relationships between associations. You know, what the IICRCA is doing really is not what the IICRC is doing. You know, IICRC is, is fundamentally about standards and fundamentally about certification uh, and certification programs. The IICRCA is all the other stuff, you know, convention, um, uh, benefits uh, for members. Uh, and I think some of the things that have been accomplished, I think, are pretty meaningful. Uh, IICRCA in, in its, uh, you know, a short time that's really been together, they're uh, co-locating uh, two events. One is going to be with RIA in Las Vegas. And they're also going to be uh, co-locating uh, an event with ISSA uh, also. And I think that there are a lot of commonalities among these groups, among the individuals, among the organizations, and it's just trying to, you know, kind of work together. So I think that's really the, that's really the vision. And it really wasn't my vision. I think the vision was probably... You know, something that Tony Wheelwright had, something that Brian O'Hallock had, and uh, I never really thought about it. And one day I got an email that said I was nominated uh, <laughs> you know, to run for election, and um, I just decided that if they felt that I could benefit, uh, that, that I would go ahead and do it. So that's why I did it. Hey, before we move on, what, what does ISSA stand for, guys? One of you knows. International Sanitary Supply Association. It's kind of the the suppliers for the jam sand industry, janitorial and sanitation industry. Okay, we didn't have the acronym police on. They were on a on a break here, so I had to make sure. All right, um, Lee, do you have any follow up to that? No, I just wanted to make uh, address one thought that uh, where I think again, Cliff is so on target, and uh, I love. The fact that you are, even after uh, I thought you had uh, fairly stepped away from the industry, I'm glad that you're not. But uh, we we just need to keep uh, the focus on the basics. One of the things as a distributor, and that's what what I think when you're young, you do it, and when you're old, then you handle the stuff that the doers need. But I love being a distributor. But what I found is we don't attract the students for fire restoration that we attract for water damage uh, in some of the other categories. And uh, I really believe that that seems to be because the contractors maybe would rather, uh, or maybe it's because of the industry pressures, uh, not do as much cleaning as they did years ago. What's your thought on that, Cliff? Well, I think we talked about it a lot last week. I think the primary reason... Uh, is that water damage is significantly more profitable than, than fire restoration. Agreed. Uh, and, you know, you were the person that took me uh, on a fire job and taught me how to write an estimate. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that. It was, a, 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 I think, in Lake Trobe, I think we did a, uh, a hotel or, mo- or motel together. Right. But in any event, you know, what happens is that fire restoration is very, very labor-intensive. Water restoration is... Uh, a significant and probably the most profitable part of the bill is the equipment rental component. Mm-hmm. So as a contractor, you know, would you rather have a bunch of equipment uh, that, that you could deploy and get paid for, or would you rather have a bunch of, uh, em- you know, hourly employees? So I think there's a big reason 
for that. I also think that, uh, unfortunately, that the standards, the water restoration standard and the mold remediation standard, have really complicated. Uh, you know, they've taken something that I think when Lloyd Weaver first introduced on location, you know, water damage restoration in probably the late 70s, early 80s. I think he had it right. I think his techniques and procedures were right. And I think since then, all we've done is made it more complicated rather than making it simpler. And I think what happens is you have standards that, unfortunately, are very procedural. You know, they tell you step-by-step step how to do it, and if you don't do it perfectly according to the standard, you know, with very little room to deviate, then you're going to be considered uh, negligent. And I think people are just very, very concerned about that. And I think what's happened is in, in pushing the standards, I think that now insurance companies uh, are following those documents and telling uh, contractors how many pieces of equipment that they're allowed to have there and how many days and all this equipment sizing stuff and, and so on and so forth. I really don't believe that's the association's business. I, I, I really don't. I, I really think that these are contractor issues. And in the old days, you know, the reason why someone would buy a bigger piece of equipment was to get an advantage over a competitor. He would take that risk and make that investment, and if it would enable him to drive a project faster or do something different, you know, that accrued to his benefit. You know, now today the work is very much uh, a commodity. And, you know, you have third-party administrators now that are looking at these bills. And I don't know, it's just like the government, Lee. We're just given too much control. Uh, I'm really a free market thinker and a free market believer. Well, thank you. Those are great thoughts. I appreciate that. And, and Lee, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. I wanted to actually get a question back to you, if you don't mind, Lee. Um, as someone that came from the dry cleaning industry and then, you know, you got into the uh, assisting, as you told me earlier today, um, people that had problems after fires with cleaning certain, you know, contents or textiles, et cetera, would come to you, and it led you kind of into this industry, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, you know what? What have you seen? What What have you learned in going from the dry cleaning into this industry? That maybe you know some lessons you've learned that that others that are now in this industry and thinking about maybe you know changing direction a little bit or whatever. Is there any advice you'd give to them? Well, it's a hard thing to ask a, a guy like me who's been through uh, so many years and watched so many incredible changes. The dry cleaning industry at the time that uh, I was very active, of course, that was in the uh, 60s and on through the 70s. And the reason I left the dry cleaning industry was that uh, I saw what was happening with the restrictions and regulations on the chemicals. And, of course, those were good because today uh, I have to deal with, uh, at my age with uh, asthmatic conditions because when you breathe, in the fumes of perchloroethylene, uh, they never leave your body, and uh, so that the lower part of my lungs turned black. And fortunately, nothing bad has happened. But it was a good thing that those regulations came in. Uh, however, uh, I fell in love with the restoration industry because I was introduced through my spotting skills, and uh, it's just been a wonderful thing for me. And I love the entry level. 
The one thing, if I know we're running out of time, I wanted one more question, if we could entertain it, or maybe next week, but, you know, the little guy never gets a chance anymore to start into fire restoration. Uh, like we did back in the old days, we could start to train somebody that was in the cleaning business into restoration. Today, it's become overwhelmingly a contractor's business. Is there anything to comment on that, Cliff? I think that, that Lee, that the business has really gone full circle. I think, you know, when I first started, um, I, I think there was a separation. There were general contractors that did the repairs, and they would look down on cleaners. Uh, but, you know, the difference is we knew black magic. We could go in, we could clean, we could deodorize, and, and we could solve the problems. I think the industry is going full circle again. And I do think that you could take any, uh, you know, particular you know, carpet cleaner or a maid service or, you know, anyone that was in cleaning. I, I think that needs back again. I think it went away, and now now it's come back because there's so much specialization. Contractors are looking for someone to go in and and do that cleaning over. Hmm. Well, I'd like to hear more about that when we have some time. All right. And you know, before we before we wrap up, Pete, let me get you in here and see if you have any final words. And I'd like to go around the table one more time. Yeah. Well. Anyway, I just kind of been listening and. Um, you know, uh, enjoyed the dialogue with uh, Lee and Cliff going back and forth, talking about old times and kind of putting some things into perspective for the future. I guess I kind of want to follow up on the question that Lee asked about Cliff's involvement um, with the IACRCA and then some of the the uh, dialogue that came after that about how, you know, the industry really needs to work to, together for the greater good. You know, I've, I've been a proponent of that for a long time through IICRC, RIA, you know, and the other groups trying to find a common ground to work together because we have so much crossover constituents. And um, one of the things that uh, the audience may not know or realize is that at the last REA convention in April, Cliff was uh, was awarded the, the honorary membership in RIA, and um, it was long overdue. There's really only three honorary members, Marty King, um, Cliff and uh, and myself, and I've actually went on the record saying I I shouldn't have been before Cliff, but that's just the way it went. But it's never too late to do the right thing. So uh, Cliff's an honorary member, and one of the things that Cliff said is very humble when he accepted the award. Is he closed by saying, "And there's still a lot of work to be done," and that kind of lends to the conversation him and Lee were having, and also, you know, when Lee said he was. Not surprised, but, you know, uh, hadn't realized until Cliff had stepped back. And now he's kind of, you know, um, getting back involved in the industry, which I think is a good thing. So I guess my final question I throw out there to Cliff, which I think would be interesting to the audience and to the listeners, and particularly those that don't really know and understand his long history outside of what they've gotten from the show the last two weeks, is uh, since he's left, you know, the industry kind of maybe been at arm's length for the last few years, and now he's kind of slowly coming back. What what are what are his plans for the future, and what kinds of things to, does he think he could help, you know, work on, you know, in in his role of being an honorary member of REA, being on the IACRCA board, that can help advance the industry to the next level, you know, as 
Cliff and Lee and myself and others, we kind of start to enter our twilight years, and the next generation will be taking over, you know, an industry that's uh, probably about five five to six decades in existence. I'd like to see Cliff address that, and of course, if Lee wants to weigh in, that'd be great too, but I've enjoyed uh, being able to participate in a small way in the show, and, uh, you know, look forward to, you know, continue to be a friend to the IEQ radio show and, and help out wherever I can to, you know, um, participate, help uh, get speakers and storylines for, you know, for the shows that would be interesting to the audience and the industry. So anyway, thanks a lot, Joe and Cliff and Lee. Good to hear your voice, my friend. Well, thank you, Pete. Cliff? Thanks, Pete. Thanks, um, Pete. I, 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 a couple of things. I think, number one, uh, Pete, uh, Lee, uh, Joe, uh, myself, and we've all done a lot of volunteer work with trade associations. And from that work, uh, number one, we have history of, of what's happened in the industry. And I think you need to know what history, you know, what the history is. Uh, and if you don't know the history, I think that the same mistakes are going to be made again. I think it's real important that uh, these organizations have, um, you know, historians around I think one of the very exciting things about the IICRCA is that it started with a new, clean piece of paper. And unlike other organizations such as RIA, IICRCA, or any of the other, uh, or IICRC, any of the other trade associations, they all have history, and a lot of it's good, and a lot of it might not be so good. But what happens is they end up having policy, and it's kind of like Congress. You know, they never get rid of old laws. They just create new laws, yeah. and they create more bureaucracy. And one of the good things about IICRCA is it's starting with a clean piece of paper. And I think whether it was Pete or Lee or Joe or myself or a combination of some or all of us, if we sat down with a clean piece of paper, uh, we could certainly start a new organization uh, you know, without some of the, the baggage uh, of, of some of the other ones. Uh, as far as my plans for the future, um, you know, it's, you know, I, I have some ideas. That's why I kind of called my new company uh, ideas, and I think some of them are, are valuable. We'll see whether or not the market feels that, that they are they're not. I think that there's more training work uh you know, that, that I'm willing to do on a, you know, volunteer basis. I, you know, I, I just would like to leave uh, the industry uh, as much better of a place, uh, you know, when I'm gone than it was, than I found it, you know. That's, you know, that's a great uh, great way to look at things. I, you know, before we wrap up, um, and Lee, stick with me for a minute if you would. I'd like to get your last thoughts, but before I do, Zach, are you still with us? Yes, I am, Joe. Zach, going back to that whole training discussion, um, you're one of the younger generation coming up, and uh, you saw how your dad did training with hands-on and so on and so forth, and now you're at Google. And I'm wondering, how do, how do they handle that issue with respect to training? Do you, do you sit in front of a keyboard and just watch things on a video, or do they actually you know, do you, they make you do things? or What changes have you seen since you've moved from this industry over to there? Well, so so here, so, so here at Google, it it 
it really depends on the on the type of training you're doing, right? So there, we actually have a multitude of different ways uh, to do it. One way is, yeah, well, um, like you said, sit sit down at a keyboard and and just you know and and tinker with things and you know kind of poke at it and figure out how it works. Another way, for example, is um, it is they they actually do large trainings. Uh, they they also do large trainings for uh, uh, for uh, for various subject matters. Like for example, I took one I took one sometime last year that that basically taught me the end to end of how to uh, of, of basically how to how to build something at Google and uh, and it, it was very informative and albeit a lot of the stuff was over my head and everything but it, it was ne- it was nevertheless a good experience and I ended up coming out of that with a lot of uh, with 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 a lot more skills and and a appreciation for how for for, for how things are done um, so, and so, um, in, in fact, one of the things that I've I've been recently asked to do is I've actually been asked to become a trainer for a for a specific uh, for a specific training, which is really just a refresher of sorts for people who may use a, a certain operating system for uh, uh, for support purposes. So, is that individual, like one on one training? Or are you training a group of people? How do they handle it differently than what you're used to in the past? So. So it, it is typically a group training, but one but one of the things that happens is it is um, at, is afterwards that person or the, the 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 trainer kind of becomes a resource, which they which they can call upon and ask uh, questions to like 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 out, like out of band like for example, you know two or three months down the line I'm uh, like I may you know I may get a question from someone like hey I was in your class. You covered this. I found this, which is a little bit, which it, which seems a bit more, um, seems a bit more efficient, or something like that. And you know, I'll follow up with them and say, "Yeah, that's that's actually a great idea. I'll I'll, I'll incorporate that." Or you, you know, you know, you know, think, you know, things along that, things along those lines. I mean, granted, here it's it. It's it's more open and everything, and you know, I can just reach out to pretty much anyone I want and and ask them questions about things. But it sounds like you do like a little mentoring along with you know a follow up after the training, basically, or that's at least available. Yeah. To them. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and when I'm and just I, curious, when you were learning how to build something at Google, Google, did you build something as part of the class? Yes, I did. Okay. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact. All right. And in fact, and 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 also and also going back to uh, and also going back to to uh, some canonical, um, or, or I'm sorry, not canonical, but um, uh, a way a way to demonstrate progress and or proficiency with something, uh, something that I recently got, something I was recently awarded. In fact, just the other day, is uh, we have this concept where you have to demonstrate the ability to uh, write code in a given programming language that conforms to uh, our standards and everything else. And I I was recently awarded. Um, I was recently awarded. We call it readability because if you look at it, you can you can easily read it and decipher what's going on. Um, I was recently I was recently awarded uh, quote unquote readability for the JavaScript programming language. I see. Well, you know, thanks so much, Zach. I I 
I thought about you when this show was coming up, and you know, you were CJ, the original CJ, our first engineer, basically, and uh, you know, uh, we really miss having you around. I know you're enjoying a new life and uh, you know, moving on and moving up, but uh, we really appreciate you coming back and joining us for this show with your dad. Well, well, it's 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 great to be here and in fact uh and in fact i still have a little red uh bag bearing the logos of both unsmoked systems and microban systems on it which i carry around every day that has a bunch of my uh you know stuff that i need every day in it awesome well hey look forward to seeing you next time you're in the area and uh lee before we go any final comments from you no this has been wonderful to be able to to participate in this uh discussion today and uh, I really like everything that I heard. Thank you so much for the privilege. Well, thank you for joining us, Lee. We truly appreciate uh, having you and, and learning from you and, and working with you. It's It's been great. And your support of the regional and all was very much appreciated, too. Um, Cliff, before we go, any final comments? Well, I, I have two. I think, Lee, I'm going to call you and we'll have lunch. And, Zach, call your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Well, there's no better way to end the show than that. <laughs> Ladies Indeed. and gents, uh, listeners, this has been a lot of fun today. Cliff, thanks again for, you know, letting me do this with you. And uh, thanks for being my partner and my co-host here. It's been uh, quite an enjoyable ride. And uh, one more time. quite a surprise. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I hope you're happy. Uh, because, I am. Uh, we were very very uh everybody was and by the way we had one other special guest lined up but he got pulled into a a meeting at the last minute rusty was going to join us too we'll get rusty amarante on here one of these days with you as well all right good thank you he said to say hello but anyway this is radio joe hughes saying uh, thank you very much to lee pemberton for joining us this week thanks to the global watchdog pete consigli of course zach zlotnick the original cj came back and joined us of course thanks to cliff for being our guest for two weeks in a row. And most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.